Welcome to your mandatory wellness session. I'm your host, Anoop. And I'm your other host, Samir. Samir, how's it going? I was not caught off guard that time. I was ready. Yeah. <laughs> I was ready for the question. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's not been bad. I, uh, I recently started uh, my pediatric urology irritation after having been on research for several months. Definitely an adjustment uh, to just being a person again. I've been taking pediatric urology call for the last few months, so like the 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 kids part, while still a little bit of an adjustment, is doesn't feel that weird anymore. But yeah, no, it's been good. It's been good. It's fun to be operating again, and I think actually having a normal schedule is nice to an extent. I mean, the, the flip side is that sometimes it's not nice because I'll be tired. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, I I think like I feel like. I finished the week and I'm like, this was an objectively like productive week where I like did things and accomplished stuff, which I didn't always feel in the last few months. And there's, there's something nice about feeling that way. So yeah, that's, that's kind of been, that's my recent change. I guess this episode will be so far after the fact because of our reshuffling, but today I'm actually planning to get my uh, second of two COVID vaccines. So I'm anticipating maybe I'll have some symptoms after that one, but then hopefully a few weeks later, I'll be like basically immune to COVID, which is a really cool idea. Yeah, it seems to be the case that the second one's the one that uh, packs a little bit of a kick, as people right. say. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, people people have been saying a lot of kick-related things about the COVID vaccine. They're like, oh man, it's a kick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, mostly because the nurse does kick you after right. they give you. But well, they say, well, well, that, well that's, how they, that's how they jumpstart your immune response. Right, right. It's your body right. reacts to the kick. And then, yeah, they're saying actually that they don't even need to do the injection anymore. That they can just kick <laughs> right. you square in the chest and it'll work. It'll work right now. It's it's like, you know, if you if you have like a lawnmower and that's not working, a time-honored tradition is giving it a good kick. Right. And seeing if that helps. And it turns out the immune system very similar uh, to, a, to a lawnmower. Right, right, right. The only problem is that the sort of the kick-starting the immune system... Uh, it's not great in the elderly and people with low bone density. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, chest kicking has a higher morbidity and mortality than one would like. Yeah, it turns out multiple rib fractures will also cause shortness of breath. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and atelectasis and then pneumonia. But it wasn't COVID pneumonia, so that's that's that's. It wasn't, the, yeah, it wasn't COVID right. pneumonia. So, so it's beneficial on net, I guess. If you if you look at if you look at cause specific mortality, huge benefit. Overall mortality, plus or minus. Yeah. <laughs> Still working that one out. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, no, overall overall exciting stuff. Um, you you had mentioned that you got a COVID vaccine as well, right? And your, your second injection is coming up? Yeah, my second injection is a few, two days from now. Or six weeks ago, depending on when this <laughs> podcast comes out. With this is the first time that we've ever had a backlog, so it's the timeline's gonna get kind of interesting for a little bit. Yeah, yeah, no, it's um. Well, the fun thing about recording a podcast that gets released later is that um, you get to exist outside the time stream, mm -hmm. which is enjoyable. You know, people don't talk about it enough. Existing outside the confines of time is like pretty fun. Yeah, you're sort of unmoored, and you can see everything and experience everything. There's a lot of predictive things. Like, I could just say, I bet something bad recently happened, and that is probably accurate. Oh, it's almost certainly accurate. Yeah. yeah. I, I would, yeah, right. Yeah. It's like, Samir, I could just be like, can you believe the news? And <laughs> <laughs> Always correct. Always, Always. correct. It's, that statement has been correct since, I want to say... 2016 maybe 2015 it's just like yeah she keeps rolling baby right exactly yeah so that's I, that that is that is nice that, that there are that that theme the, the the constant nature of that theme has been um has been helpful because once again while being unmoored from time is very fun sometimes it can be kind of alarming um i will say you know kind of just floating around um time is both passing you by passing through you you're passing through it. Also, it's very, it's very, it's a, it's a, it's a strange place to be. Certainly, yeah, metaphysically. Yeah. Well, metaphysically. the weird thing is, once you start to believe that you are time, right, and that you always have been time, that can be kind of disconcerting. Well, I, I will say, by definition, if you are time, you always have been time as well. It's the, right. it's the nature of time. It's the it nature is. of time, right? But I think sort of our linear minds can't sort of grasp the enormity right. of that. 
But it's, it's nice true. to take a break from that sort of existential dread to sit down and record a podcast. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's very, it's quite, it's quite nice. Oh yeah, I, I've just been screaming into the void for the last like few hours. So it's nice to give my vocal cords a rest and just have a normal conversation. You know, I, I will say for us, this has kind of been related to this entire sort of, um, we, we entered this sort of podcast vortex, but what we're experiencing has actually just been experienced um, worldwide during 2020 as well. Yeah. Um, so um I, I think we're actually in very good company yeah yeah it's a pretty it's it's like existential dread and sort of a living nightmare is pretty par for the course so. right that's just like that's just baseline right yeah. exactly exactly um well yeah very exciting how about how about you what's what's been going on oh who's to say really <laughs> i, right, I yeah, can't it's... tell you i don't know what has been going on uh okay what 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 has been going on or what will will occur or what is currently occurring? I mean, those all mean the same thing, of course, to us, but for yes, our listeners. Yes. So I will tell you, I am about to start a month in the COVID ICU, which may mean that I have finished a month in the COVID ICU. I think it's going to be an interesting experience. Definitely, I you know, I'm certainly reasonably nervous about it, but it's the nature of being a healthcare provider. And, you know, how has it gone? Who's to say? I think it I think it went okay. I think it was a lot of work. I think the it's just sort of emotional toll of it. Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. This is yeah. a very bleak joke. It, it is. It, it I think the reality of working a month in the COVID ICU will probably not be super pleasant. Yeah, no, you no, know. sure. Definitely, we'll see if it's something that I end up talking about on the podcast in the future. You guys will know because you're you're in, you are also in the future. You're probably binge listening to this, so you might be listening to the episode that occurs after that, after this, before the end of then. Yeah, you will have listened to that my takes on that at some point in time, but that's pretty much it. Otherwise, I've been on diagnostic radiology for the last few months. It's been good been learning a lot of diagnostic radiology just i took my in-service exam yesterday i mean this is just a sort of a list of facts yeah yeah i i i meant to ask you about that how did it go it was fine it was an exam right. you know it's All super right. quick it's not like a, a real in-service it's more we just take like of an out service it's more yeah, of an out service. Out, out service yeah, because we sure. do it outside. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Which right. is hard because most people think radiology is a computer-based specialty. So right. it, you meet somebody, usually on top of a mountain. Uh, you have to hike up there, of course. Uh, and, and then it's sort of a wizened, older gentleman. Though, it, admittedly, I didn't ask their pronouns. So they looked like a gentleman. But interesting. Yeah. I, yeah. I, do, do, do you think that do you think wizened gentlemen are overrepresented compared to wizened ladies just because of historical reasons? Yeah, I do. I do. Yeah. I, and I think yeah. that's an issue that they're trying to address, you know. Sure. And, yeah. it, and the problem is now, if you look at the sort of wizened community, uh, women sometimes feel like there's a wall there because they don't have the mentorship, which I know is a topic that we've discussed, you know, up right. to high no, hell. No, 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 right. But yeah. it's like, you know, if you're a woman and you say like, oh, I want to be sort of a, a wizened uh, sort of esoteric person who lives in the hills. And you say like, who am I going to go to for advice about that? And you see, you know, 20 white men, you feel like, oh, well, what am I supposed to do? You know, well, you I, know it's interesting. I, I, I feel like part of that, I mean, I think there's also a gatekeeping aspect, too, which is, you know, the word wizened, I feel like has a very strong association with it. Right. At, at least mentally. It's a very specific type of person, you imagine. Um, but really, when you look at sort of demographic data, there are more women in the age group that would traditionally be considered wizened. And so if anything, like beyond the fact that they're clearly underrepresented, they're even more underrepresented than you would think, because if anything, there should be more wizened women. Right. Well, because, yeah, because they live longer. So they live longer. Right. Yeah. It's like, yeah. I, I mean, it's a real problem. It's a real problem. And, it, you know, if I could be as bold as to say that, you know, this is like an issue in the patriarchy, man, you know, yeah, no, I, by I definition, agree, yeah. almost, uh, they've really subsumed that community. But anyway, so you go see this wizened man, uh, they sort of just describe radiology pictures to you and mm. you just have to make the finding. You know, it's interesting based on the urology in service where they show you um, radiographic images, I, I feel like describing them might be equally good based on some of the quality 
Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe even better, some could argue. It's somehow <laughs> higher resolution than an actual picture. Yeah, who, who can say, really? So, yeah. Okay, well, solid. I'm glad that went okay. We also, yeah, we, we had our, we, just, yeah. It's just a series of things. I mean, life is not that interesting anymore because we're just inside all the time. I I, I do like the description of it's just a series of things, which um, I don't want to alarm you, but uh, does apply to literally everything. (laughs) Well, you know, it's just a description of life. We're just circling back to that sort of existential dread screaming into a nightmare void. Yeah, that's true. That's a it's a good it's, it's sort of like the baseline state you know it's like on that curve of like energy that it's sort of like the stable equilibrium is like existential dreads okay well solid um anything um i know obviously once again covid but like anything particularly fun going on in your life or planned oh plans uh okay i'll I'll do small plans and big plans so small plans wise i've been cooking way more lately uh i just bought a cast iron pan so I'm about to season that bad boy up and start making some steaks at home. That should be fun. And other such things that you can cook in a cast iron pan. Uh, there's just a lot of cooking that I want to do. I, I, we've talked about on the podcast the sort of weight that I've lost. So I need to cook at home more in general just to be healthier. So it's definitely... Uh, it's. A semi-new hobby for me. I've cooked a lot in the past, but it's always been pretty unhealthy cooking because uh, cheese is delicious. Uh, so now I need to make like actual healthy foods. Uh, it should be an interesting experience. And then big plans. I did have a trip to see some friends planned a good amount of time after I would be vaccinated. That might be slightly shifted around because of the COVID ICU stuff. So I might be pushing that trip a little bit, but I'm looking forward to that hopefully happening in the future. We'll see. Might need to take some time. (laughs) Right. So vague potential plans um, as is our life. Okay. Reasonable. Very reasonable. You mentioned cheese. It's quite interesting. I, this is actually not interesting at all. I don't know why I'm telling the story, but I'm going to do it anyway. So yesterday I was drinking a couple glasses of wine and uh, I was like, oh man, I could really use some cheese right now. And I didn't have any. And then last night, uh, I, I dreamt that I was um, eating cheese with wine. <laughs> I apparently really wanted cheese. <laughs> God. <laughs> so it was like, really? <laughs> if I edit this episode, I'm going to take out the part where you say that it's not interesting and just leave a bunch <laughs> of dead air after that <laughs> before we move on to the next topic. Yeah, this is a, yeah, this is a really good, really good story. It's true that, I mean, as they say, dreams can sometimes be a form of wish fulfillment. And this one, while very short term, objectively was. <laughs> that's, you know, that's true. It's very interesting. <laughs> I love the idea that, you know, people add such a mystic air to dreams. <laughs> it's like you're just in a therapist's office being like, but what does it mean? And they're like, oh, right. it sounds like you just wanted cheese. Man. It sounded, it does sound like that. And, uh, and it was good. And it was quite good. Yeah. So, what what cheese much. did you have in the dream? Um, it was a, I think there were two cheeses. One was a like a seriously sharp cheddar, which I which I really do enjoy, mm. and one was a softer cheese that had like sort of like blueberry in it. You know, have you had have have those cheese? Like, yeah, of, yeah. I, mean, I guess it's like a goat cheese. I'm not sure that maybe had, regardless, it's like a softer cheese, but with like some sort of like, like blueberry kind of imbued in it. I don't really know. I, I don't know how cheeses work. I mean, that's <laughs> amazingly specific for a dream. Because a lot of times, things in dreams are just concepts. Like, afterwards, yeah. you were like, oh, I had cheese. But if you try to think about the actual cheese that you had, you don't know what it was. No, no, totally. Yeah, that's why I remembered it. Like, that's why it was like, it wasn't like, oh, yeah, that was okay, whatever. Like, it was it was very specific. Like, I, like I woke up this morning and was like, a little confused because I was like, wait, did I eat cheese yesterday? And I was like, no, I'm pretty sure I didn't. And then I was, I was like, oh, all right. Yeah. No, no. It was it was actually it was a very specific dream. But like just was very low key. I wasn't like doing anything. I was just literally just like chilling. <laughs> so, Interesting. Now, was it just cheese and wine or did you have crackers too? I honestly don't remember crackers. I mean, I might have. Ah, okay. I, I So we've hit the dream wall. <laughs> <laughs> right. So now you need to hypnotize me <laughs> so that I can we can find out if there were crackers there. Right. Well, it could be an inception sort of situation where you have to enter my cheese dream. To discover the crackers and then, like, find out the code to my cheese safe um, through multiple layers of dreams. It's a whole, you know. Well, I entered Samir's dream and now he's really into charcuterie. (laughs) 
right, right, exactly. Wait, it wasn't like a corporate espionage thing? No, no, I just, I wanted to have a friend to go get charcuterie with, and nobody was into it, so I uh, changed Samir's brain chemistry, and now he's super into charcuterie. <laughs> Yeah, so it worked out worked out pretty well. It was it was it was overall solid. Are you gonna get cheese? Drink. I feel like you have to. Oh yeah, no. Oh, oh, oh yeah, for sure. I I'm pretty like. I honestly feel like I feel like this is like a thing maybe in like Futurama where they like have as in your dreams into your brain. Yes, and I think that happened to me <laughs> because honestly, I woke up this morning. I was like, I need to go get cheese today. And I'm probably going to after we finish recording. I have a grocery store nearby. That's actually Whole Foods. I don't I don't go there normally because I'm you know not a millionaire, but I I go there when I need something quickly, and they have a good cheese selection. So I'm gonna go there and get cheese later. Right, right, yeah. It's like because they don't cater to your billionaire tastes, so you right. can't go there. No, it's true. <laughs> you don't I mean, go that's... to Whole Foods because it's too poor for you. <laughs> no, yeah, it's not. <laughs> yeah, um, if I wanted to spend nineteen dollars on an onion, I would go to Whole Foods, but otherwise. You know, correct. Yeah, you buy your your onions for forty dollars a piece. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Yeah, I come on, a nineteen dollar onion. What am I, a savage? Well, the crazy thing is, honestly, even Kroger's prices on produce sometimes look silly when I compare them to like the Indian store because they're like, oh, here's like ten onions for like forty two cents. You're like, all right, fine. <laughs> if you insist, here's ten onions and a samosa. <laughs> <laughs> buy ten onions, get a samosa free. That's the deal. So. Yeah, dude, so. I buy so many fucking onions. that's how they get you the the the, uh the samosas are their uh loss leader exactly (laughs) so they get you in the door i will say one thing that is like i was mentioning being back at work and it's just like obviously i was like i like new things during my research and i was like doing some learning and stuff but i think the active nature of just like having to like be reading about these cases and patients and different pathologies is definitely a big change. Not that I forgot, but just I'm at work for a full day, often like a very long day, and then I come home and then I have like more work to do. I was like, all right, that's residency. How could I forget? Um, but yeah, so I think that is that that has also been uh, a bit of an adjustment this week. For a moment, um, you were kind of, convinced that all of residency had been a dream. Had been a dream. And I was like, what were they advertising? Yeah. Like therapy? Because if so, has not worked yet. Yeah. <laughs> Still haven't bought into it. Yeah, you have to learn again, which is such a difficult thing. I, I, I get that sometimes there's certain uh, rotations, actually, the ICU and critical care rotations where we don't go to the radiology lectures anymore. And so when you come back, you're like, wow, I have really stagnated on my learning for about a month. And you, you miss those, uh, those learning opportunities when you're not in active clinical care in your specialty. No, exactly. On the subject of learning, our, um, our topic for this week is a discussion of learning and teaching methods. I guess not really learning methods, I guess really teaching methods. And uh, I think something we've touched on before during the podcast, uh, but I don't think in any great detail, which is the idea of pimping, which, uh, you know, it, within a medical context uh, is describing basically uh, the act of sort of a series of questions, normally from a, an attending to a resident or to a med student, in which they're trying to sort of probe your knowledge and find out exactly what you know, this is often something that happens in the OR, often on rounds, particularly in like a medicine setting. And, and it's something that's very, it's very sort of intrinsic to medicine. Like it's a, anywhere you go, I think people talk about it. And, and some of the articles we were reading about it, it's not just like a US-based thing either. It, you know, it happens elsewhere for sure. Um, I guess to an extent it happens in other fields or just like a general discussion and questioning. But I think the way to which it's, which it's codified within medicine is particularly unique. And I guess the, the, the question basically is, is that... Is the way that occurs reasonable or, 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 are there, or, there, or is there room for improvement, perhaps? Yes. Yes. Uh, it's a very leading question. <laughs> is there room for improvement? Well, uh, let's, perhaps, you know, perhaps. Yeah, survey our listeners. How many of you have had 100% good experiences with pimping? Probably not any of you. <laughs> right. That is to say, I think we all acknowledge that pimping is a flawed system. And when I say we all, I mean all reasonable people acknowledge that pimping is a flawed system. It's just that most people are not very reasonable and therefore will not see pimping as a flawed system. Pimping is one of those pillars of medical education that the people who most ardently defend it, you know that they're probably the worst at it. 
they're probably the ones who engage in the most malignant practices surrounding it. Let's get it out of the way just to start. This th- this I know we've discussed before. Yeah. Pimping as a term is kind of fucked up and probably not a term that we should use. Yeah, it was actually interesting. During our reading, you know, I was kind of just jumping around reading about different thoughts on it and like the millennium verse benign pimping etc and one that i found which i thought was basically actually directly addresses this point and you know obviously someone has talked about this which is uh, it's an article it's called pimping a tradition of gender disempowerment and it's talking about how the fact that that is the term used which is you know uh, generally a term referring to like a criminal who like has power over and makes money off like sex workers is not a great term to be using in like a medical setting for like questioning your subordinates and that uh is yeah questionable and certainly makes i mean that it's very much a an old world term born out of the fact that like at some point like women just weren't in the halls of medicine basically um and it's like definitely super inappropriate but um it's obviously just kind of the term of art basically so we'll continue to use it during this podcast but with the acknowledgement that that probably is not a term that really should be being used and I remember when you pointed this out to me for the, like on one of the episodes, I was actually surprised because I had never even considered that before. Like just a total blind spot. I didn't even like realize that it was like, kind of a crazy thing to call it. And yeah, I, I feel like at some point probably will fall out of favor for exactly those reasons. But at least for the moment, we'll... Yeah, yeah. I think it will fall out of favor eventually way later than it should have fallen out of favor, right? And, uh, you know, some of the articles we've read, uh, they make a very astute point in saying that when we talk about pimping in polite company we call it the socratic method and that's that's actually my big sticking point on it and why i wanted to uh discuss this is because pimping and the socratic method are two wildly different things yeah they're just like not (laughs) it's not the same at all all. well let's start start we'll start at the beginning right pimping as a term because we're on the subject right now as, as to how it's inappropriate uh, pimping as a term has been used back until like 1628, uh, the f- one of the first documented uses. Oh, so it's interesting. So I, I suspect you, you're, you're quoting this article, right, like the art of pimping. Yeah. That main article. So then this other article talking about the gender disempowerment, and everyone just describes that what the article says as fact. But this article says those are all like fictitious origins. <laughs> This um, other article is saying this whole Pumpfrage thing where it's referring to pump questions in German and it's like not true. And it says Brancati, this author, fictitiously, fictitiously attributes pimpings for suspicious historical figures, amongst them William Harvey. Like uh, apparently it's all like part of this, like the same bit in this oh, entire it's all article. Oh, part of the bit, Samir. That's fantastic. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. That changes everything. Yeah. Uh, it's all hilarious. part of the bit. Yeah. And the funny thing is it is just quoted as fact continuously in like every other article there's so many articles that are like oh it derives from pumpfrage okay well okay apparently, let's change this whole fucking discussion apparently entirely completely untrue and this guy brancati is a is a fucking genius yeah <laughs> let's go then 1989 brancati writes the article the art of pimping and i guess changes the fucking game because everybody <laughs> just believes it it is so clearly a satirical article yeah so clearly a satirical article and even it i guess it got me because the the little citations in it i believed because i was like ah oh, yeah I, I i assumed it was a joke but that he threw in some facts of truth <laughs> that's the there. yeah but no it's a satirical article about pimping as a tool in which to subjugate your subordinates and to seem empowered. Essentially, it's stylized as a guide for new attendings on how to properly pimp people in order to show your dominance over them. The core thesis, the core actual thesis being that, like, pimping is largely a tool with which you show dominance. It's largely a political tool as opposed to... Yeah, you, like, bludgeon people with. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Yeah. Oh, man. that changes everything. <laughs> no, it, it, it is so interesting, though, because I, to your point, like, basically every article refers to this uh, original article, and obviously it kind of mentions, like, this is sort of a discussion of it, and there's some, like, satire, but a lot of them don't totally seem to get the point. Like, there was one article in which they talk about, like, malignant versus benign, benign pimping, and they describe, and they mention one article that talks about malignant pimping, and they use this as an example of an article that talks about benign pimping. And I was like, I did we read the same 
article. That's I, the thing. You read it and you clearly see the person who just saw the citation and cited it. Like they did not read the article or they have zero sense whatsoever. Yeah. Like I guess no ability to recognize humor. Like the, the entire thing is like, I mean, the it, it's making fun. Like the, at one point he lists different categories of pimp questions and they're clearly all ridiculous. Like the first one is arcane points of history. These facts are not taught in medical school and are and are irrelevant to patient care. Perfect for pimping. Like, yeah, what? it's clearly like, a bit. I don't understand. <laughs> I, so, quick pause. You guys should go read this article. The article. It's very thing. funny. It's we'll, very funny. I think we'll link it. We'll link it in the description. Go find it. Find the PDF and read it. It's very funny. It's very good. And you'll understand. It's also pretty short, too. It's like two pages. It's two pages. Very short. Then come back, keep listening. So we we have that take on it. And it's weird. I think that actually the fact that so many people do not get the joke is a perfect example of sort of the hold that pimping have on people. So much so that they think that that is like a real thing. This clear parody satirical article is like a real guide to pimping. And, And you have people talking about malignant versus benign pimping. And I'll say my supposition is that there is no such thing as benign pimping there is teaching and pimping yeah i think that's fair i i guess yeah like because i've had i've made that same distinction myself before and it's sort of like what i describe it as malignant like basically benign pimping is if you get the question wrong you're not a bad person but i I, yeah i think to your point that might just be teaching yeah and (laughs) and i suppose some would accuse me of making a sort of semantic distinction distinction to say that well if it is bad it is pimping and if it is good it is not right it's sort of like the no the no true scotsman like fallacy you could argue right it's like right and and they would be correct i am making a semantic distinction but i think an important semantic distinction because we need to deforce ourselves from the history of pimping which is pimping is inherently by its very name associated with a a malignant practice an actively illegal practice as well, but an immoral practice. Right. And to use that as our framework, I think has a sort of psychological impact, mostly because most people in medicine do not know how to teach and they fail to acknowledge that and think that pimping is their version of teaching. Mm-hmm. When when you see these things as a parody, people do actually pimp like that. I mean, you've been in the OR where they ask you, like, oh, who developed this technique? Who, what, what year did we start using this technique? And I'm like, how is that at all relevant to me using this thing that we're doing? No, yeah, I mean, 100%. One of my favorite, this is not my own personal story, um, but it is um, a story I think I saw on Reddit. And somebody got pimped on what, like, basically, I think it was, like, when you're doing, like, a tracheostomy, like, what artery would be like bad to like run into and i guess is like close enough that this is like a known complication and obviously a disastrous one and the answer is the brachiocephalic artery which was formerly known as uh uh, the innominate artery i.e the artery with no name and the student answered the brachiocephalic artery and the attending said no (laughs) it's the innominate artery which is hilarious the student is like um it's this named artery and he's like actually no it is uh the unnamed artery like all right well i okay all right. Yeah. <laughs> Brief aside to talk about naming of things in medicine. I've probably said this before, but the fact that people still use the term innominate artery, the fact that innominate artery was ever a term that was ever used, <laughs> you can't name something unnamed. <laughs> Fuck off. I mean, according to Microsoft Word, um, untitled is like, right? I mean, that is the default name. So you got me there, right? But you're not going to name this the untitled artery. I'm sorry. <laughs> All I'm saying is this may be episode uh, 16, Untitled. <laughs> the, the fucking... Just think about this, though. The number of people who have named things in the human body... I know. Meanwhile, somebody didn't want to stake their fucking claim to the brachiocephalic. They're like, nah, this is a nominate, guys. Nah. <laughs> this There's one no, doesn't get a name. <laughs> There's no way of naming this. Absolutely Only no one of the main branches of the aorta. No name. <laughs> <laughs> eh. Eh. Anominate. Yeah. But anyway, yes, no. I mean, I mean, to your point, right? Exactly. So it's all these really specific things like eponyms. I think that's also mentioned as one of the categories. Yep. 
that's category number four eponyms just <laughs> yeah yeah i mean this, this article from, from 1989 like nails it nails it oh, it's 100%. so good it's so good still uh, exactly as true today so besides just railing on pimping as a concept I, I divorce it from the Socratic method because the Socratic method is just an entirely different thing, right? So right. when I talk about the Socratic method, it is about asking a series of questions. However, the context in which that is done is not asking questions about facts, right? It is about a critical thinking process. It, fundamentally, it's a concept that's used to discuss facts philosophy like concepts that do not have objective answers and it's rather meant to question your suppositions right so if a student in a philosophical argument is breaking down a series of steps with which they come to a conclusion you ask questions about each of those steps to ascertain the underlying validity of those steps right uh, it's pretty simple overall, but it was, you know, revolutionary. Uh, obviously, Socrates got his name on it, so it was pretty revolutionary. Well, no, it's it's, it's actually the innominate teaching method. <laughs> Sorry, the innominate <laughs> teaching method. Well, before that, it was, and he's like, oh, dibs. Dibs. <laughs> <laughs> obviously, you can't violate the international dibs protocol, so he That's got true. it. <laughs> you know, dibs is dibs. So the Socratic method is is kind of a thing that people in education in general, but certainly in medical education, just try to stamp onto to, to the topics or to their educational techniques. Oh, we're very Socratic. Asking questions is not inherently Socratic, right? The question has to be asked in such a way as to ascertain if a person truly understands a concept. By its definition, it... it it almost cannot be about a factual thing. Yeah. Because facts do not actually require understanding. So can you use the Socratic method in medical education? Yes. It is when you try to understand if a person understands a mechanism or a larger concept, you can try to like elucidate that. And I've seen people do it particularly well. When people talk about good pimping, they are talking about something that is close to the Socratic method, but not exactly. When they right. talk about benign or good pimping, they talk about like, oh, you need to adjust your questions to the level of the student and see what they're, they are able to answer and what they aren't able to answer and teach them the things that they aren't able to answer. That's actually just regular teaching. It's right. not actually the Socratic method because <laughs> the Socratic method is a very specific thing. It's important to sort of divorce those two concepts because i don't actually think the socratic method is super useful for getting somebody to understand a bunch of facts like it's not continuously questioning somebody about a series of facts if they don't know the facts additional questions is not, are not going to get them to the facts and that would be impressive certainly <laughs> yes yes if they worked it out entirely on their own because unlike the socratic method the Socratic method, you can talk somebody through a proof because a proof is fundamentally entirely theoretical, right? Yeah. It's like, I want to talk you through this and question you through this so you understand how we came to this conclusion. Whereas with a thing that is a physical property, it's like, I can talk to you about pharmacomechanics all day long. If you don't know the physical property of like this particular molecule, you're not going to get the answer right. right. And moreover, how relevant that would be to clinical care is, is you know. Yeah, entirely zero. a different story. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I mean, so I, I think, you, you, I mean, I think that's a really good point, basically, that fundamentally, the, there are like two aspects. There's one, which is you can genuinely use a Socratic method, but it really is not going to apply to most forms of teaching, I think, within medicine. And then two, the importance of like teaching within medicine in general, and that people aren't necessarily that good at it. And I think actually the same article talking about the sort of the gendered nature of the term pimping talks about the fact that teaching in medicine is not incentivized or like financially rewarded. And it's something that actually came up recently in a, in a journal club that I that, that I did in my residency. We were discussing um, basically articles talking about like women in urology. And there, one article was a really good review article. And it was talking about uh, that in general, women in academia... Like if you look at like more broadly, tend to have 
greater teaching roles, but those are not rewarded in like academic pathways because they're so fixated on like research output and like productivity. But at the same time, they want to encourage teaching because they're like, oh, we're academic. We like teach. We're all about teaching and learning. But it's basically not incentivized at all in, in most academic pathways. And there's more of a push now, at least in some places, to basically have a more like a less research focused pathway to things like, you know, assistant professorship and full professorship, et cetera, and, and to emphasize the aspects of teaching and mentoring instead of just being about research and therefore like maybe incentivizing people to actually un have some form of training in teaching, right? Like, you know, I think everyone to an extent does teaching like in your life broadly, but there's a clear distinction between who's like a good teacher and who's not a good teacher. And you can get, you can, you can become a better teacher. Like that, I mean, <laughs> but people literally go to school to become teachers. It's like a thing. Right. And so that is, it's very possible to do. But if it's not incentivized, people are not going to do it, right? I mean, you only have so many hours in a day um, and so many like years in your life. So, I mean, you're, are you going to waste waste it on something that isn't um, necessarily going to like advance your career or life? Yes, yes. I think that's very true. Most people, they have no reason to do it. So why do it at all, right? right. And why get better at it? Why even think about the concept? Because it is so in the back. To think that like, Already, this is the thing that's not incentivized. So to even improve it is doubly not incentivized. Right, like, exactly. Why would yeah. I improve it? Why would I get better about it? Only because it would be better for medical education and medicine in general if we all got better at teaching. But who cares, right? I mean, who cares in the long term? Only yeah. people who aren't like broken by this system, which is right. few and far between. Exactly. Right? Or people who just genuinely enjoy it on their own like it's just something that they find personal satisfaction they will become good teachers I, I don't even know if the bar should be becoming a good teacher necessarily i the bar should just be not being a bad teacher because that's right. kind of the norm right now is that most mm -hmm. people are not very good at it at all and pimping is actively a bad form of it because pimping is more about establishing dominance than it is about teaching and some people are so far off the trail that they don't even recognize that they might not even people be people who want to establish dominance they might be genuinely good people but in their minds they just assume that this is the way you teach because this is right. how they were taught yeah you know I mean, that's the most that's the most dangerous thing is that people just do the thing that was done to them, you know, a cycle of abuse, if you will. So if you were pimped, the only way you know how to learn that thing is via pimping, is via by provoking anxiety in your residents such that they go home and spend all their time studying arcane points of trivia so that they can win the game the next day, you know? Yeah, I, I and I think, you know, I, I'll say personally for me, I'm someone where... In a positive environment in which it's not like them, you know, the person sort of casting aspersions on my like character, <laughs> being asked questions that I do and sometimes don't know the answer to is generally has been actually, and assuming they're relevant questions, obviously not like random points of trivia are not really useful at all. But uh, assuming they're relevant questions, I have found that useful for my own learning. You know, some, getting a question wrong in an environment that is not um, malignant I think is actually valuable and I have learned from it because I think you remember when you get things wrong. I'll give a good example. During my didactics, oftentimes it will involve sort of going resident by resident and whoever is either presenting, whether it's another resident kind of presenting a topic or a faculty member and people will be asked questions and it's amongst a group of residents and there's a couple faculty members, but all, you know, all people who are involved sort of are pro like, you know, are like, you know, program director or, you know, otherwise um, faculty who are interested in teaching and it, it's it's an environment in which in which getting a question wrong. I mean, obviously, you're like, oh, I wish I got that right, but I, I never feel like bad when I get a question wrong. Whereas, like, when I've been asked things in grand rounds, un unusual but does happen, that always feels way more fraught, right? Because it's in front of your entire department, and so getting it wrong, particularly if it's a question that feels like it's sh like you should know the answer to, just feels pretty bad. And then once again, I mean, that's part of medicine, right? I mean, you have to know things, and sometimes not knowing them is bad, and so you should learn them. But I think if that's your environment all the time, constantly, it's just really bad for um, mental health and wellness, basically. Mental health and wellness, sure, obviously. But I, I'm talking from a pure utilitarian standpoint. It is not an optimal way to teach. 
Yeah, right? yeah. It's also just not necessarily good for learning. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And to your point, obviously, question and answer and like testing, any testing. Let's slot that into the category of testing is valid, right? It is actually the way testing is supposed to be used. In America, we use testing as a benchmark to see if you can progress and to fund our educational systems, which is a whole other thing that's not related to medical wellness, but who cares? Uh, We use testing incorrectly as a society, but testing is supposed to be like, I want to benchmark your knowledge so I know where you are so that I can then teach you from that point, right? Right. And you can also use this as a benchmark of your own knowledge to learn the things that you have gaps in, right? That is what testing should be, but testing is just a part of education right so if all of your teaching is just testing and the supposition is that you go home and learn these things on your own that's i suppose a valid technique but it wastes time right you're just testing you're a person who understands a concept you should be able to give more than just a textbook can right you should be able to help teach in a practical environment it's like you're taking practicals you know fundamentally going into work is is the corollary would be like doing a lab when you're in chemistry class right it's like you're actively practicing the thing you've been learning about right during a lab you don't just ask a bunch of questions like you explain how processes are working you explain how things are being done you know you should pair your teaching techniques with what is going on whereas right now what happens is like okay we're we're doing the thing we're taking care of the patient we're doing the surgery whatever it might be now let's take a break so i can grill you on like fundamental processes okay now back to taking care of the patient right and you should just learn all those fundamental processes on your own time and and i think actually it was an, an additional point which i think kind of came to me as you were speaking which is that when the teaching is in these disconnected blocks and like random, it is just not structurally useful either. Like it, it is very hard to remember isolated concepts without a without sort of a general like thought structure around them, right? So if it's a discussion of what percentage of people with this size of renal tumor, like does it end up being like malignant? No, is that like a reasonable fact to know and something you should useful to know for like counseling patients? Totally. But in and of itself, like that single fact is, I think, not that useful from a learning standpoint. It is maybe a useful fact to know, but I'm not necessarily sure it gives you much insight into like the general process of like renal tumors and like ways to classify them and like things to know about them and, you know, concerning aspects, you know. So I, I think when you are too focused on individual facts or minutiae, even if it's useful facts, like not not straight up trivia, but just actually useful facts. I think sometimes if there's not a structure in the way you're teaching it, you're not necessarily going to, like your bang for your buck is kind of just lower. Right, right. You have all the educational utility of a flashcard, but a flashcard yes. is an inanimate object. Like you are a living, breathing human being. You should be able to do a little bit more than a flashcard can. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. So I, I think that as well, right? So I think, and I, I realize that this is, as we were discussing, right, to to have a sort of a structured way of teaching and to do so even on like on the spot, if it's in the, in the setting of a surgery, et cetera, is difficult. I very much empathize that doing that is difficult and takes work. And that some people are, might be naturally better at teaching than others. I will say there have, I've had, those experiences, and I, I mentioned the OR specifically because I think it is a classic example, where of course I've like read about the case, I'm prepared, etc. And then during the case, the type of teaching I've gotten has been so extraordinarily useful that like I still think about it, right? Because like there's only so much you can get from like reading an atlas or watching some like grainy video on YouTube to try to figure out what to do in a surgery or figure out what exactly what's going on or to understand the anatomical relations. And when someone has taken the time, I know it's like a few extra minutes during the surgery, maybe by the end of the surgery, it adds up to a 15 minute longer surgery. But to point out relevant anatomy, have me feel it, explain the relations of things, explain the way they are thinking during the surgery. I mean, just extraordinarily useful and and exactly the type of thing you cannot get from a textbook. Right. And so that that is what it should be. Right. And I'm not saying I have a specific fact that I can take away from that. It's not like I learned something I could put down onto a flashcard. But there are some some neural connections have been formed that 
provide a platform to build on. And one thing that is extremely valuable. And it's, it, it is difficult to exactly codify like what that is. But when it's sort of a classic, like when you see it, you know it. Um, and I'm sure you had the same experience as well. Yes, yes. And, and I think it, it actually all leads to a very good point. It's the start of this Bracanti article. Uh, he talks about like, you're a new attending and you're using pimping to like establish your authority over your new subordinates, right? That actually gets to the core of this concept is that if you spend your entire medical education focused on collecting a series of esoteric facts, when you become a new attending, and this is a very common sensation that I've heard from people who are new attendings, you feel as if you don't actually know how to do anything because you don't know how to think. You know all of the collection of information that you need to know. You were probably a very successful resident because you you know, your scores were super high because you knew all the facts, but you don't know what to do with those facts. You know, there's so much space in between the application of one fact and the next fact. And no one's ever talked to you about all that space in between. And a good educator is a person who spends more time on that and leaves the facts to textbooks and flashcards, which are better at teaching facts than people are. You know, it's actually, it's a really, that is a really specific and good point. I've noticed it myself when I am in the OR now, I feel like specifics about like, why are you using this type of suture here? I realize a lot of my examples are very OR specific, so apologies. It's really interesting because you'll do the same surgery at several people and they do things differently. And that as a learner can one be kind of confusing and like annoying. So you have to learn like five different ways of doing the same thing basically. But it can also be very useful when you actually try to ask the reason for why. And sometimes the attendee doesn't have a specific good reason for it. They're like, this is how I've done it. And I've, it's, it, is, it does well. But occasionally they give really good reasons and things that make sense. And beyond the fact that it helps you remember it and like helps your thinking about it, it influences, I think, the way you'll eventually practice because you have five different ways of doing it. And maybe you kind of now you're thinking, well, this is what I need to think about as the criteria for making my decision. Like, which one do I choose to use? It is based on these sort of competing things instead of just, a, ah, I guess I'll just choose this suture because it's what I've always been taught. And yesterday or maybe it was the day before I was I was operating with a, with a younger attending and great attending, great at teaching, really cool guy uh, and very good, uh, like uh, operatively. Um, and I asked him a couple of questions about, about the specific sutures he used. And he gave, I mean, he gave like a reasonable reason, but he also was like, also it's like early in my career. So like at this point, I'm still exact. I'm like still like totally figuring out the specific details of why I'm using this one thing compared to a different thing. Like he's, he's obviously working well, but it's like, maybe there is something that is better, but I just don't necessarily have enough experience to specifically say, I'm going to break from doing this. And it's, it was interesting. It was actually a really interesting insight into the way he's thinking as a young attending. Once again, it's very good, but like doesn't necessarily have that sort of independent experience where he's going to be making all these breaks yet from what he's been taught. Right, right. You can teach somebody how to be an independent thinker. I think that's where we can actually draw the most from the Socratic method is that the fundamental goal of the Socratic method is if I teach you how to formulate these thoughts, then you can use this framework to formulate new thoughts because right. now you are very critical of your own thought process, right? That is where the Socratic method can get you. So if I'm debating you in the middle of an amphitheater, you know, I can give you the skills with which to debate something else. As one does. As Most one of does. my debates are amphitheater based, well, as you know. Yeah, not anymore, of course, because of coronavirus. But back in the day. Well, 2019. Me, me and the homies, <laughs> we used to roll up on the amphitheater and just debate some shit, you know. It was, it was very fun. You get some dinner afterwards, debate yeah. some more, you know, whatever. It's fun. It's fun. I mean, I, I, you know, oh, every home you've been into, I'm sure everyone knows this listening, has has a debate amphitheater. Um, that's a key part of any home. It's like bedroom, bathroom, kitchen, amphitheater, standard yeah. sure. um, things in any 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 home. I, I, in my apartment, I don't have a lot of space for it. I'm considering trying to convert 
um, at least part of my living room into an amphitheater. But once again, with coronavirus, it's like, why even bother? Yeah, my apartment building has an amphitheater, but you have to like sign it out ahead of time. Oh, it's like a shared space. Yeah. 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 And it's like, you know, obviously I would love to have a place with my own amphitheater, but we're talking about Southern California, right? So it's like, you know, what am I going to do here? Yeah, it's tough. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you got to move out of any sort of populated area if you want to get place like that and then you're like talk about am i gonna commute for two hours just to have an amphitheater that i only use on the weekends like right right it's it it, it's actually it's people say this about um about boats and amphitheaters Uh, the two best days of uh owning a boat or amphitheater is the day you buy it the day you sell it exactly exactly (laughs) that's what what everybody says yeah you know where i hitch my amphitheater to the back of my pickup truck and send it (laughs) down the road it's true um yeah so I feel like you had an original point before I derail the fuck out of that. No, no. So to to my original point, you know, because we we can host another whole podcast about buying and selling amphitheaters. That's its own topic. But we have the reason that I want to make such a distinction between the Socratic method, pimping and good teaching is that we have to analyze the way in which we're using tools. I guess fundamentally I'm asking people to do the same thing that they should be doing during education to when they're thinking about education. You have to think about the tools that you're using and see if they're actually suited to the situation. A large part of medical education is imparting a series of facts onto your resident. They just need to know a certain amount of stuff. And question and answer is a good way to assess if somebody knows stuff. It is not inherently a good way to teach somebody that stuff. Question and answer and something related to the Socratic method is a great way to teach processes, thought processes and complex ideas, which is a thing we need to do more of in medical education because that would remove that, that initial feeling of being an early attending and feeling as though you don't know what you're doing or being even, let's just say, a senior resident within residency and feeling as though you didn't actually learn anything over the last few years because you've been collecting a series of facts and haven't figured out how to utilize them right we need to figure out the way in which we're teaching to actually optimally use our time because i know it's not incentivized as we talked about there's no financial incentive to be better at teaching but you are teaching still like most people still teach some amount and we need to figure out how to make the most of the thing that we're not incentivized to do because it's not like you're going to get any more money for it you have this fixed amount of time for it like why not be good at that thing that is so important yeah i'm, I'm trying to like piece like put this all together in sort of a more in, in, a, in a cohesive way and I, I i think what i'm coming down to is a lot of what you basically are just saying which is that it it is not something that is necessarily incentivized. And yet it is something that the entire principle of residency, of medical training, is to train and make ready the next generation of new physicians in these variety of fields. And if you work in academic medicine, one could argue from like a broader sort of like long timeline point of view, it is one of the most important things you can do in your career in terms of your impact being multiplied, right? right? If you as an attending work at an academic medical center for 30 years and you instruct basically like hundreds of residents and they go out into practice and take care of patients in part with the knowledge that you imparted to them, you have a hand in the care of all of those patients, right? You are, you are intimately involved in it, even if you don't know about it. And, and certainly you might have previous students or residents come back and tell you or talk to you about it. But frankly, you do. And and certainly that in some way, that's the point of research Like you create, you, you make advances, you kind of make differences in, in, you know, guidelines and care that can really be spread, you know, across the country, or across the world. But in a really intimate, personal way, effective teaching, your, your effect is multiplied so, so much. And when those residents go out and do teaching of their own, it's multiplied again. And it is truly a, it can be a very positive virtuous cycle when done well. And to your point, it can be a very vicious negative cycle uh, when done poorly and turns into this you know, cycle of abuse, the cycle of pimping. And there is so much evidence in everything we've talked about when it comes to burnout, it comes to wellness, 
that these sort of interactions, negative interactions with attendings, interactions where residents feel humiliated in like group settings due to this sort of like this pimping, this aggressive questioning is, is very present. There was a, there's a, there's a study, which I think we may have talked about before on the podcast where they basically had uh, medical students or perhaps residents um, basically draw like cartoons about like their experience on rotations and a huge number of them were like these really dark things, like things with them being like beheaded, right? Like metaphorically things with like physicians being re- or attendings being represented as like devils or demons or monsters. And a lot of it was to do with these interactions, this feeling of, you know, no one really guiding them and feeling like they're being attacked or maligned. It, it, to me, it's so clear that a, a better form, a more consistent form of education that is positive would make a huge difference both for actual learning, but also for things like mental health. And and um, the ability to make that impact, I think, is so valuable, um, you know, a, a, as a resident with medical students below us and, and as an attending eventually, um, you know, with residents and other trainees below us. You said it perfectly. Uh, it, just to add on to it, when we bring it all the way back to wellness, right, we obviously you hit the points of like, how does it hurt wellness to be bad at teaching? But to be good at teaching creates a cycle of success, right? And success breeds wellness. We're all people who want to succeed, right? So feeling as though you're actually learning and that you're getting better and and you're having those good benchmarks and improving, it helps take us away from imposter syndrome. It helps us feel like we're more successful on each individual rotation. You'll see how it relates to so many different concepts in wellness that it's like you can't divorce the education aspect. I mean, this is, you know, a, a concept that we've hit on multiple times. But by believing that wellness is its own category, that's like a separate thing that we need to deal with and not thinking about how our individual practices affect wellness, we're, we're handicapping ourselves. We have to yeah. look at everything is wellness in a way. And ed- this is the way in which education is wellness. There's a term and I can't come up with the term exactly, but basically within like evolution, like it's... Like it, like wellness is sort of like an emergent characteristic. Like it is, it is not like an intrinsic thing you do and create. It is the result of everything else feeding into it, right? There are all these, you know, there's like myriad inputs that go into this black box that is like our mind. <laughs> and from them, you can then assign some characteristic of like wellness or burnout or like mental health. And there's no way to say, oh, I'll just pump up the wellness, right? You have to fiddle with your inputs and continuously check the output and see, oh, did this help? Did this hurt? And that I think is, it fundamentally is the thesis of the podcast, right? I mean, that is like that everything, all we're discussing is going into this and they're all often very interrelated as well. And so you cannot in a vacuum be like, oh, I'm going to change this and just assume that a, a solution will then arise. Right. It requires a sort of cultural change. It requires emphasizing things on an institutional level. Right. Like you're, you're going to have good attendings and not as good attendings because that's any group of people in the world in any field. But when you have an institution and a departmental culture specifically that emphasizes the importance of teaching, that makes it part of their incentive structure, you will actually generate long term, meaningful and permanent change because you've made an effort to do so. And that applies to so many of the concepts we mentioned, because it is not as simple as, well, oh, I'll just, you know, I'll just make this modification and then things will be better. It is like a very, it is from a ground up. It is a groundswell that is required to make it happen. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, see. <laughs> Once again, my, my Samir makes a broad, um, Possibly, some could argue, too broad speech that tries to sum everything up. Um, did it work? Who can say? Email us. Let us know. Yeah, yeah. Email us. Just, just the word yes or no. Subject <laughs> line, did it work? Yes or no. You know, actually, um, this is something that we discussed on, it was episode 13. Once again, uh, that happened after the recordings of episode 14 and 15. And I think it is actually a very nice concept. And I think it is something that it would be nice to include in our podcast what is one good thing that has happened to you recently? Oh, yeah. Hit us up. Send us an email. If uh, It can be related to a residency. It 
doesn't have to be related to residency. You know, we're, we're happy to talk about anything good. Anything good in the world that is 2020 and 2021, guys. Just let's let's be a little Please. light in each other's lives. <laughs> anything, anything good. As mentioned, you can email us at mandatorywellnesssession at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at mwspodcast. We have uh, a website linked on our social media, and we are on iTunes amongst many other podcasting apps. And of course, our theme song is Nothing Slash Anything by Westy Reflector. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.